If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts. Dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Whether it was Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or Revolver, the music of the Beatles resonated with and reflected the key trends of 1960s Britain. Rhiannon Davis spoke to the historian Dominic Sambrook to find out more about this cultural phenomenon. So what was Britain like when the Beatles were growing up? So the Beatles are born in the Second World War era, I suppose you would say. So uh, in a world shaped by the the war, they are they're slightly different class backgrounds. So John Lennon, for example, grows up in a relatively affluent kind of lower middle class household. Uh, Ringo Starr and George Harrison are more kind of working class, I would say. But by and large, they're growing up in a quite, um, a kind of, in some ways, quite a late Victorian world, you know, a world where they are surrounded by musical songs, uh, a world of kind of brick terraced houses in Liverpool, obviously, um, but also quite a sort of grey Britain, I think. So the sort of 1940s Britain, when they're kind of born and growing up, um, they that's the age of austerity, of rationing, um, are very much influenced by the kind of the two world wars. Uh, so a world utterly different, actually, in some ways, from the 1950s and 1960s world, where they kind of come to, to sort of maturity and then they come to stardom. So that they're they're coming. Well, if you look at their trajectory, it's sort of kind of from grey to technicolor, if you like. 
So before they're the Beatles, they are the Quarrymen, which is a skiffle band. Um, and they perform at a church fete in Walton on 6th of July, 1957. And you describe this as 50s Britain in miniature. <laughs> yeah. Why did you say that? Well, it's the summer of 1957. It's actually the 6th of July when they first, Lennon and McCartney, meet. Um, it's actually a, a nice summer uh so britain has got this it's interestingly poised in 1957 because it's just coming out of that kind of grayness that i was talking about and coming into a kind of world of affluence of consumerism of relative optimism so the the church facing question is in a suburb of liverpool called walton which is reasonably well off um the St. Peter's Parish Church kind of jamboree is is a highlight of the summer calendar. Um and, and in some ways you could say it's a very conservative moment because you have the band of the Cheshire Yeomanry and you have floats of scouts and guides and you have Morris dancers and you have stalls selling cakes and vegetables and things like hoopla and shilling in the buckets, you know, all these kinds of games that will be familiar to anybody who's been school fates or church fates or any of these kinds of things so in some ways you could say it's 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 an unchanging world an unchanging cultural world but of course it's not because a people are much more um affluent and outgoing than they were 10 years earlier but also even at this church fate you have a skiffle band now skiffle is one of the great sounds of the mid to late 1950s it's this kind of amateur do-it-yourself um, music that's an imitation really of american music and lots of youngsters are interested in this because basically to buy a guitar a guitar is i mean it's not nothing but it's relatively cheap and easy to learn compared with other musical instruments so the young paul mccartney is very interested in this he's 15 and he he's heard that there will be this local skiffle band called the Quarrymen playing at the fate and the quarrymen are fronted by a slightly older boy called John Lennon. Um, and they're playing a hit when, when McCartney walks onto the field. I mean, kind of Beatles historians have kind of analyzed this moment and somehow managed to extract every possible kind of nugget of, of detail and meaning. So the quarrymen are playing a recent hit by the Dell Vikings um, uh, at the very moment when McCartney walks onto the the field and they play and and then and in this sort of again this sort of this moment that does feel very 50s britain the quarrymen go off stage and they're succeeded on stage by a display by the city of liverpool police dogs so that kind of gives you a sense of the kind of spirit of this of this occasion and mccartney and lennon go over to the church hall for a little chat and McCartney does his impersonations of kind of Gene Vincent and Little Richard, so American stars who are sort of delighting young listeners in late 50s Britain. And he borrows a guitar and he shows he can do the chords. And Lennon thinks, oh, golly, this is he, this fellow's quite good. And two weeks later, he says to the 15-year-old McCartney, well, why don't you come and join our band and, and play with us? And um, And the rest is history. <laughs> interesting fact from me is that my dad's cousin was the member of the quarrymen that paul mccartney replaced really so this is yeah very close to my heart this one wow so you I and mean, that's the band the beatles could have been right if, yeah yeah he yeah. plays with the quarry now really I think he's, yeah he just does. think how successful the beatles could have been if he'd stayed 
I know. I think he wanted to stick with skiffle and banjo. So right. sadly, it was yeah. not to be. But um, moving away then from the Quarrymen. So the Quarrymen become the Beatles and they get a three-month residency in a Hamburg nightclub in 1960. How typical was that for British skiffle bands at the time to go to Europe? Um, it is actually more typical than you would think. So basically, um, in West Germany, you know, which is obviously recovered from um, the wartime and the sort of the shock of of, of defeat and all that, um, it's full of sailors in Hamburg and it's full of soldiers. So you've got the British Army, the Rhine, but you also have lots of American soldiers. And they require entertainment. And canny promoters, um, you know, there are basically more skiffle bands in Britain than there are venues and listeners so canny promoters have worked out that basically one thing you can do is to bring skiffle bands over to the continent very easy take them on the boat you know they, it's kind of cheap and, and straightforward and they can play in these um sort of quite seedy bars in hamburg in the red light district um and you know you'll bring in the punters because they're doing stuff that ger local german bands basically can't do so the Beatles are far from the first to go over. Um, as, the, as you said, they go over in August 1960. Um, they go into Hamburg, which... So Hamburg in North Germany, um, you've got a lot of British sort of sailors in Hamburg. Um, it's very famous for its club scene. It's very famous for its kind of red light districts and for kind of prostitution, not surprisingly, because of the, the sailors. Um, so the Beatles have never been outside... Um, Britain before there are five of them now so they are Lennon McCartney uh and George Harrison so three canonical Beatles but also Stuart Sutcliffe and Pete Best um so they're going to play for three months in this Hamburg club um the Indra which is basically a cellar you know it's it's pretty dingy um and they have it has strippers and stuff like that they are put up in some really filthy rooms in a cinema across the street. They wash in the cinema toilets and so on. Um, often those first audiences they play to are local prostitutes and their clients. Um, but yeah, they're part of this wider infrastructure. So the Beatles, when we think of the Beatles in Hamburg, I think people sometimes think that the Beatles are unusual or they're pioneers, but they're not really, because when they get there, there are already a lot of British bands there. I mean, in Hamburg, you can see, you know, there's the people from Kidderminster, bands from Weybridge and from Cornwall and so on. I mean, from the most unglamorous places in Britain, I'm not knocking Weybridge and Kidderminster, but, you know, from very kind of unglamorous places, there will be bands who haven't really been able to make, make it in their own town, but they can come to Germany and they can make a little bit of money and crucially, I think, get experience of playing in front of a live audience. That's what Hamburg really does to the Beatles. I think it toughens them up and makes them more professional. They're used to playing in front of a raucous crowd. They start dressing up to impress the crowds. They meet kind of Germans who introduce them to kind of slightly radical, kind of avant-garde-ish styles, haircuts and so on. So it's really a kind of, you know, it's a bit like, um, it's not exactly a comparable to the grand tour of the 18th century, but it is a moment that widens their horizons and kind of lifts them out of that world of the city of Liverpool police dogs um, show that they hmm. steeped in. And you mentioned they're part of this wider infrastructure, and this is something I wanted to ask more about. So zooming out, how is popular culture as a whole becoming globalised in the 60s? 
It's a really good question. I think it is obviously becoming much more globalized, or rather at the time people just said Americanized. So Europe obviously is starting from a huge disadvantage because it's been so fractured and so damaged by the Second World War. So really you have this almost unique situation where Europe suddenly is a long way behind America commercially. So American consumerism is carrying all before it really in the 19. 19- 50s and 60s in a way that it doesn't again or before i would say but the gap seems seems wider so absolutely you have a kind of infrastructure across europe where people listen to american music at this stage i would say not really british music um they listen to british musicians in germany but they're playing american music but yeah in the long run absolutely really zooming out you can see it as a stage in the globalization of popular culture you know, because people in Germany are listening to the same music um, that they're they're listening to in Liverpool. And that kind of does feel new. I mean, I know at high cultural level, it had always been globalised to an extent, but not, I think, so much at popular cultural level. So, yeah, I think you're right. It does feel like, um, you know, there's a kind of growing homogeneity, and the Beatles are absolutely part of that. I definitely want to talk to you more about the Beatles in America later, but before we get to that, Focusing on Britain again, the youth culture is blossoming in Britain in the 60s. How does that propel the Beatles to greater fame? Well, um, basically what you have in the 60s is you have a lot of young people with money. I mean, that's what all this story is about. It's not about imagination, ideas, creativity, or the things that people think. It's about money. Because of the affluent society, because of the, the boom in living standards, higher wages and so on, You have people who are 16, 17, 18 with more money in their pockets than ever before. Disposable income. So they're not spending it on rent or anything like that. They they want to get rid of it. And basically, you have an emergence of an industry to separate them from their money. So by selling them makeup, dance hall tickets, magazines, and crucially, music. You know, cheap record players now, so people are buying more than ever before. Had that not existed, the Beatles would not have existed. I mean, it's as simple as that. If John Lennon and Paul McCartney had been born 30 or 40 years previously, there simply wouldn't have been the market and the infrastructure to promote them. So they wouldn't have happened. So as a result of this growing market, there's Beatlemania, which is this explosion of merchandise. So this is the first time, this is a landmark moment that a band has ever become such an object of obsession. Absolutely. There has never been... um, there has never really been merchandising to do with bands before Beatlemania. So Beatlemania happens in the early 1960s, let's say between 1963 and 1964, at a point when the British economy is really booming. The Chancellor, Tory Chancellor Reginald Maudling has unleashed what he calls his dash for growth. So put the economy into overdrive. Um, people have tons of money in their pockets suddenly. The American rock and roll momentum has stalled. So there's nothing coming out of America that is innovative. So the days of kind of Elvis and Bill Haley and the Comets, they're all old hat by 1962-63. So the market feels like it needs something new. That's when the Beatles make their mark. They capitalize on, there's an explosion of magazines and so on. There are people producing, exactly as you say, things, Beatle wigs, badges, uh, you know, posters, all of these kinds of things. And you're absolutely right. These simply did not exist before for music. They did exist for cinema. So you people would have bought in the interwar years um, 
pinups of their favorite film stars, for example, but not for music, partly because, you know, um, it's harder for young people to buy music in the, in the, before the Second World War or to indeed to buy record players. Now it's much easier and they've got radios, of course. So in 1963, the Beatles kind of break through into the charts, really. They, they dominate the charts in 1963. And then in the autumn... Um, so the 4th of November, 63, they play at the Royal Variety Performance. And that's the moment that I think really enshrines them or embeds them in the kind of national imagination. So they ITV show the tape of the of the occasion a few days after it happens. And it's watched by 26 million people. Of course, television is crucial in this story because there's no TV in the 30s or the 20s. So that, again, would have op- acted against them. And because they've got the kind of royal seal of approval, you know, John Lennon makes a great joke about uh, rattling your jewellery in the posh seats and all this sort of stuff. And they have this phenomenon of teenage girls. So much of what we think of as the 60s is driven by teenage girls, not really boys. But teenage girls often have more money and they're the biggest single factor in the music market, more than boys are. So... The Beatles appealing to girls is crucial. That's why Brian Epstein smarting them up and giving them the look is really important because it appeals to kind of more respectable girls. Um, and there's these scenes, obviously, the Beatles arriving and being greeted by screams and all that stuff. That is that is new. There had been fans for film stars, as I said, but for a, a band, I mean, you had a little bit of that with Bill Haley or with Elvis, but for a British band, I mean, this is the first time it's really happened on this scale. And with that Royal Variety Show performance, the press have quite an interesting response. Whereas in the past, they had denounced rock and roll. They'd not been its biggest fans. They really like the Beatles. They say their hair is a mop, but it's washed. It's super clean. <laughs> yeah, the Daily Mirror. Why do the, yeah, why did the press turn and decide that the Beatles are great? Oh, well, there's lots of very complicated reasons for this. I mean, one reason is because they're simply because they're British. So the previous um, sort of, you know, the denunciation of Bill Haley or of Elvis, I mean, that's largely because it's American and people are distrustful of American influence, basically. Um, Why else? I think because there is a thirst for novelty in 1963, which wasn't the case in the late 1950s, a thirst for something for change and for modernity in the press. Uh, but also because there's a mood in 1963-64, the Beatles capture. It's at the very end of the Macmillan government. There's a turn against kind of elitism and establishment values and things, because you've obviously just had the Profumo scandal. Um, and a sort of sense that a tweedy Britain is on the way out. And the press, which has really turned on the Tories, is keen to have, to sort of change the record and to embrace youth and modernity and optimism and meritocracy and so on. And that's why it's really important that the Beatles are Northern, because Northernness in 1963 is, is very kind of culturally and politically loaded. It's seen as more authentic, as refreshing, as more meritocratic, all of those kinds of things. So the Beatles kind of fit into that national discourse, to use a sort of slightly academic-y word, um, in a way that they wouldn't have done you know, in the mid-1950s, when northernness wasn't cool. Northernness is already cool in 1963, so the Beatles kind of make sense against that background. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And we often forget, I think, that the Beatles 
they're not just um, sort of romantic artists performing in the garret. I mean, they're, they're never that, actually. They're always much more disciplined, much more commercially minded. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And it also seems to me, though this might be me reading too much into it, so feel free to shoot me down if that's the case, that this is a way for them to make their mark in the world again, for Britain to show its superiority. Because in the 60s, the empire's on the way out, isn't it? And you had this really interesting quote, I think it's from the Daily Music Express, where they say, um, we might be a second-rate political power, but we're leading the way in music. The enemy, the enemy, yeah, the new musical express, exactly. Yes, so basically, had Britain still had its empire, the Beatles would not probably not have broken through to the same extent. That's my theory. I think because they are seen as, um, you know, they are, they're not embodiments of empire. They're not standard bearers of, of kind of power in a way that they would have been a few decades earlier. So a post-imperial Britain, which can treat itself and its history as a bit of a joke, is a very different proposition abroad to one that is still kind of pith helmets and smiting natives. Um, so, you know, when the Beatles go to America, there's no talk really of the British Empire. I mean, it's kind of, they're seen as whimsical and entertaining, uh, but they're not seen as representatives of a rival power or anything like that. Um, and And, you know, they become tremendously successful all over the world quite very, very quickly. But there's no resentment that kind of, with that. But I think in, let's say, abandoned, I mean, it's obviously a, a laughable comparison, but abandoned the 1910s or the 1890s or something would have encountered resentment because they would have been seen as representatives of a superpower. And I think in the 1960s, the, the Beatles aren't. Um but you're right. I mean, that that's headline in the NME, that comes after they first arrive in New York in February 1964. And they have this extraordinary moment when they appear on the Ed Sullivan show on CBS. They're watched by more than 70 million people. Um, you know, there's this torrent of merchandise across America. I mean, part of that, as I said, is because the American musical scene has become very stagnant in the early 60s. So the Beatles are offering something new. They're also, because of the sense of humour, that's quite different from American bands, which often talk themselves quite seriously. Um, and, and indeed, that, that that tension is always there in British and American kind of musical culture. The British bands tend to be more whimsical, more kind of self-conscious. But yeah, in Britain, this is greeted as an absolute moment of triumph because people, are, have, I think, are sick of... They, they feel that they've been Americanized in the previous sort of 10 years or so. And now they're fighting back, you know, the empire strikes back. Um, and I think um, that is definitely there in a lot of the commentary in 1964 about the Beatles' first sort of great breakthrough. I mean, the talk of the British invasion, which you have on both sides of the Atlantic, the sort of, you know, you don't have to be a historian to kind of spot the subtext. So we've talked so far a lot about culture and politics, and I want to change tack now and ask you about one particular album, which is Revolver, released in 1966. Why was this seen as such a masterpiece when it came out? Well, I mean, when the Beatles came through in sort of 62, 63, um, they're seen as a 
you know, they're just a very successful pop group that have become a kind of broader political and cultural phenomenon. But there's no real sense, I think. I mean, there were a few pieces, famously a critic in The Times says, what well, you know, what brilliant uh, songwriters they are and compares them to kind of Beethoven and Schubert or something. Um, but but the, And there's no great expectation of kind of artistic, a sort of lasting success or longevity. So the general pattern is you would break through as a band, as a pop group, you would have three or four years of success before basically your listeners get too old. And then their successors will want something different. So what you will do is you will end up playing on kind of club the club circuit and you'll, you know, you'll basically slightly be reduced to pantomimes. You know, but I mean, we laugh at that now, but that seemed like a pretty decent career if you're starting out in the late 1950s. What's unusual about the Beatles is that they make the transition quite quickly from being a basically dis- disposable pop group, as they were originally perceived, and then becoming this kind of artistic, you know, outfit who are making kind of more serious music that was clearly going to last. And I think Revolver, um, which comes out in August 1966, um, is is the moment really where you can see they're doing something very different because they are experimenting with electronics. They've got psychedelic effects. The lyrics are much more elusive and much more intricate. Um, then this isn't just pop music. This is something that they are straining or, or striving, I should say, for greater kind of artistic um, credibility. So the jazz critic George Melly says, you know, this is the moment where they break through the conventions of popular song. It's the moment that pop comes of age as a kind of artistic form. Um, the song that always I always like from Revolver, though, is uh, not one that people think of as very artistic. Because I'm such a, a, a grad grindian kind of mercenary reductionist, um, it's, it's tax man. It's George Harrison's lament that he's basically paying too much tax. So... Uh, this is the Wilson government. Taxes are very high. The top income tax is basically around 90%. Um, so the newspapers are fretting about brain drain and so on. Um, George Harrison, who is not well off, you know, not from an affluent background, he's the son of a bus conductor and a shop assistant. He has never, ever hidden the fact that he is in the Beatles to make money. So when they, Brian Epstein got his assistant got them to fill in questionnaires when Einstein took them on and said, you know, what do you, what, what are your ambitions? And Harrison said, you know, my ambition is to retire with a lot of money. Um, and he means it. He absolutely means it. And why wouldn't he? He's from quite a poor background. Um, he's grown up in a council house. Of course he wants to make money out of it. I mean, he's completely unashamed about that. So Taxman is his complaint. You know, he mentions Mr. Wilson and Mr. Heath in the song, you know, that they're, the inland revenue are taking too much of his money. And we often forget, I think, that the Beatles, they're not just um, sort of romantic artists performing in the garret. I mean, they're, they're never that, actually. They're always much more disciplined, much more commercially minded. They've got an eye on the market. They're always trying to read the latest trends. And it's what makes them so successful. Um and, you know, even the way they change their clothes from album to album, their, their look and so on, they're very much sort of outward-facing They and, and thinking about the audience and the wider kind of milieu and so on. Now, not all of them are so unashamed as George Harrison is saying that we're doing this for the money. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I always find that um, 
really interesting because it actually runs against a lot of people slightly sanctify and romanticize the the, the mus- musicians of the 60s we have this sort of image of them as starving romantic artists who stood only for peace and love but obviously in the beatles case that's that's just simply not true and you said that they are really good at keeping in tune with the trends of the time. And one of the albums that that's really clear in is probably their most famous, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And this really taps into the nostalgia of 60s Britain, doesn't it? How do they go about achieving that? So this is May 1967. Yeah, this is... And the 60s, there's a a great kind of cultural churn in the mid-60s. So you've had, um, in 1964, 65 or so, that's the kind of heyday of kind of plastic dresses and op art fashion and the sort of space age talk and all this sort of stuff. But by 1967 or so, that's already very, very old hat. Um, it's kind of, you know, sort of the sort of shininess is very passe. Um, and there's a sort of Victorian revivalism in the mid 60s so people art nouveau fabrics and um you know victorian dresses and people wearing waistcoats and obviously flared trousers kind of naval trousers basically um become the big thing and the beatles are, are big trendsetters in that i mean it's an interesting thing isn't it they're they're partly reflecting and they're partly driving and it's very hard sometimes to say which is which i mean generally you, i think you would probably say they are driving certainly in terms of making what are more minority things into kind of mass markets so sergeant pepper um the victorianism is absolutely it's built into the kind of the name the look the cover but also the sound so it's the steam organs and there's kind of vaudeville music and music hall so when i'm 64 for example or there's a fairground on being for the benefit of mr kite um so it's I mean, this is what's really interesting about this is this is their Britishness coming out. So it's not an album that an American could have made, uh, but it's also very nostalgic. If you think about the other bands, the Kinks, for example, uh, the, the Village Green Preservation Society, again, very backward looking, very nostalgic, kind of almost pastoral. Um, you see tons of this in the 60s. I mean, the cover of Sgt. Pepper, uh, the very famous kind of collage, You've got Robert Peel, Aubrey Beardsley, Edgar Allan Poe, Oscar Wilde, H.G. Wells, Lewis Carroll, you know, a sort of gallery of Victorians. Um, and that felt very much of the moment. You know, you would go in the mid-60s, there would be shops in London, of course, you know, I was Lord Kitchener's valet and stuff, and where you would go and you'd buy a sort of Edwardian uniform and a pair of ludicrous flares. And you would sort of have a Victorian-style moustache and gigantic sideburns and so on. So that's absolutely of the of the moment. And the Beatles, they both reflect that, which is, I think, is an emerging trend, but also they drive it at the same time. And something else they drive is fascination with the East. Can you tell us a bit yeah. about their meeting with the Maharashi Mahash Yogi in <laughs> 1967? I can indeed. Yeah, so... There's always been an element in British popular culture of a fascination with the East, obviously partly because of the empire. Um, But obviously that was nowhere to be seen during what I just referred to as the sort of shiny phase of the 60s, the sort of, you know, plastic dresses kind of um, point of the 60s. But then you have this moment in August 1967 
when the Beatles go to the Park Lane Hilton for an audience with the Maharishi, who's this Indian holy man who's basically like a casting agency has supplied an Indian holy man who's the great sort of progenitor of transcendental meditation. He's got meditation centers all over the world. And um, uh, they sort of sit and they listen in apparent awe at these very anodyne um, pronouncements by the Maharishi, sort of slightly meaningless. You've created a magic wand in your name. Wave it so that it will move in the proper direction. I mean, what does that mean? Anyway, the Maharishi comes out with this stuff. Um, And in some ways, you know, that's quite a Victorian moment in itself. You know, the Victorians were really into, you know, uh, seances and spiritualism and... um, they had a fascination with kind of Indian holy men and Indian religions and things. So this is kind of par for the course in some ways. So, you know, you've even got people going to India um, on the sort of hippie trail, students and and whatnot. So the Beatles end up, they're going to Bangor uh, for a sort of retreat with the Maharishi and and they later go to Rishikesh in India, which doesn't go so well. I think, they, some of them are tiring of the Maharishi and his pronouncement at this stage. Ringo Starr famously goes with an enormous quantity of baked beans because he's distrustful of the local food. And some of them come home early and they think the Maharishi is a bit creepy and they think basically he might be a fraud. But yeah, it's part of it, again, like the Victorianism being part of the sort of cultural climate, the, um, the Indian stuff is absolutely part of the climate because there's a backlash against science and technology modernity at the end of the 60s that's partly driven by opposition to the war in vietnam and therefore an opposition to kind of american american modernity um so you get this sort of rise of buddhism and hinduism you have sitar music obviously on the beatles albums and and becomes the sort of trend for sitar music in um rock groups so yeah the the sort of fascination with the east I think the Beatles definitely popularized that. I mean, that was always there, but it was very much a kind of highbrow, metropolitan, kind of well-educated taste. It's the, you know, but for people in kind of Scunthorpe who are Beatles fans, who might not ever have given, you know, transcendental meditation and Indian religions any thought, the Beatles are offering something entirely new, I think, at this point. And as we come towards the end of the decade, all is not well with the Beatles, sadly. What leads them to break up? Oh, God, well, this is a massive question. I mean, I'll probably get more grief for this than anything else I've ever said. Um, I mean, actually, you know, I think the the people have always sort of dissected the details of the Beatles' break. I mean, obviously, we get back the the documentary that's now running. Um, People are sort of pouring over this once again. Who is really to blame? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that um, certainly two of them, John Lennon and George Harrison, were keen to do stuff on their own. And that, I mean, people still argue about how much Yoko Ono, Lennon's new wife, is a kind of destabilizing influence. Um, Paul McCartney wants them to carry on, but, you know, whether they will work with Paul, it's all very confused and becomes very bitter. I, I suppose in some ways the question is, why wouldn't they break up? You know, they've achieved all that they want to achieve. And, um, you know, at that point, it's not obvious that... Uh, there's any reason for rock groups to stay together for for decades and end. I mean, in some ways, the more the more obvious question it seems to me is this: more strange is why do groups like the Rolling Stones stay together? Why don't they break up? 
Um, it actually seems completely natural for the Beatles to break up. They've kind of reached the end of the road artistically. They're very much emblematic of a particular moment, which has come to an end. Um, I would say uh, that they break up. You know, it's, impo- it's impossible for young men, very, very rich young men now, living in the, such scrutiny and under such unprecedented strain. To it, it's it's hard to see how they could have stayed together actually. Um, and definitely because of they they are more ambitious artistically than let's say the Rolling Stones, the individual members are keen to go and spread their wings and test themselves and do different things. Now that's obviously not the case with the Stones, who are just happy to play the same kind of stuff, who are less less kind of um, well. The, I mean, they are just basically less ambitious and and less interested in novelty than than the Beatles are. Uh, but also, I think the Beatles' dissolution, it kind of feels right coming in 1969 to 1970, because it's kind of a slow motion collapse, really, because that is the point at which, really, the optimism of the 60s seems to be fading away. I mean, the Beatles are very much the music of a, a buoyant, outward-looking, hopeful age. And um, inflation is biting into the economy. The oil shock is just around the corner. Labour about to be voted out in June 1970 and replaced by a Tory government whose reforming ambitions will lead it into outright confrontation with the trade unions. So there's going to be a much... The conflicts in Northern Ireland has just begun. There's going to be a much harder edge to life in the 1970s, certainly by 1972 or so. So in some ways, the question is, you know, if the Beatles had stayed together, what kind of music would they be making by 1972? given their ability to read the kind of cultural mood so well, it would have been much harder-edged, I would imagine, much more, much darker, um, much more, probably more controversial. Um, So would they have found a place in the 1970s? I mean, that's the interesting thing, you know, because, of course, younger audiences would have wanted something different anyway. I mean, younger audiences in the 70s would have... You know, if you're 15 or 16 in the early 1970s, do you want to listen to what the music that people were listening to, the band that people listened to 10 years earlier? I don't think you do. So in a way, breaking up in the 1970s is probably the best thing that could have happened to them because it preserves them untouched as the kind of music of idealism and of hope before all that curdles, you know, in the by the mid-70s or so. Um, I mean, they could... I suppose they could have ended up as a kind of tribute band to themselves rather like the Rolling Stones to just endlessly recycling their old hits. But I don't think because of that creativity, I don't think they'd have ever wanted to. So in some ways, the breakup was probably inevitable. It's hard to see how they would have continued in the same vein longer than they did. So for my final question, it's a bit of further reading for our listeners, well, further listening. What song do you think of the Beatles best typifies 60s Britain what song would you tell people to go away and listen to oh my god one one song uh, you can have three I'll be generous I can have three um golly uh well I think you choose something very jolly and optimistic to start with so um love me do ticket to ride I want to hold your hand maybe you know, the sort of poppy sort of stuff. Uh, or She Loves You, maybe. Um, then I suppose you'd be looking for something 
more experimental, like a day in the life. I suppose a day in the life is the sort of heyday of their kind of psychedelic experimentalism. So that's from um, Sergeant Pepper. And then um, maybe Let It Be. Um, so I think that's, what's that? That's uh, basically the last single that they released before Paul McCartney announced that he was, that the Beatles had ceased to be a going concern. Um, so that's kind of slightly, it's not really mournful, but it feels like a kind of uh, an elegy in some ways for for what has gone before. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe that's how I do it. But I mean, God, you can't really go wrong choosing three Beatles songs. As long as you don't choose Maxwell's Silver Hammer, um, you're laughing. That was Dominic Sandbrook. He wrote a feature on the relationship between the Beatles and 60s Britain, which appeared in the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine. Meanwhile, Peter Jackson's documentary, The Beatles Get Back, is currently streaming on Disney+. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.